2: Just close my eyes again, climbed aboard the dream weave a train Try to take away.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to America Meditating Radio. I'm your host, Sister Jenna. That was Gary White. Remember that oldie but goodie, you know, one of those old time ones, at least if you're up in numbers like I am. (laughs) That's one of those oldies but goodies. I know the millennials will have no idea of who that was and what that song was about, but an absolute classic, an absolute classic there is a conversation going on inside of our souls, a narrative that we either believe in or want to believe in or maybe just fantasize about. You know, it's like these thoughts create our feelings. These thoughts create our interpretation. These thoughts create the reality of our environment. These thoughts invite our future. Eventually, these thoughts we carry sometimes and more times than we want to mention feed a lot of our past experiences. And in a class that I was sharing over the weekend, what thoughts do you need to plant and what thoughts do you need to bury? Food for thought. What thoughts do you need to plant and what thoughts do you need to bury? Thoughts like, oh, I'm not good enough. You need to bury that. Thoughts is, oh, I love practicing becoming my better version of myself. You need to plant. Get it? So, what thoughts do you need to bury? What interpretations have you been holding on that you need to bury? And what thoughts do you need to plant? Send me some messages on what they were. I would love to be able to read them and get my own experience because that's what I love about the America Meditating Radio. Six years counting, six years counting. We're approaching our sixth retreat. We're wonderfully happy to be having a lot of our guests uh, come for a little bit of an upwardly uprising experience at our retreat center. And again, you know, if you're not serving the side of history where you're feeling better and people are feeling better and the rise is happening, then just know that you're on the other side of history. And it seems as if it has to take place. There has to be a dark patch and there has to be light. And no matter what stage you're going through emotionally, mentally, physically, financially, relationship-wise, haven't you noticed that even in your darkest moments, there's always a spark of light somewhere? There's always a little bit of a light, kind of like in your home, when all the lights are out except for that little nightlight. And that little nightlight gives you the comfort or the safety to get yourself to the fridge without bumping your toe. So anyway, we hope that you're in a good space and a good state of mind. A lot of stuff is happening, and that's because a lot of us are being urged to step into a deeper place. I was at a wonderful movie screening at the museum last week with my friend Bishop Carlton Pearson and it was about a movie called American Heretics. If you haven't heard about it, please Google it. It's by Butler Films and it basically talks about how the Bible Belt of America, to what extent are they losing their practitioners and to what extent has the religion of Christianity separated and divided not only people but a nation. And also to what extent is even the Bible or religious individuals using religion to support racism and connect it to, well, God doesn't say this and God says if you're this, you're that, you're heathen or you're damned for hell. So it really became a conversation that right now a lot of Christian fundamentalists are either leaving the church or looking for new ways of finding inclusion, support, understanding and kindness. And we need to dive into the science of kindness more. Because while I was at the private screening, I met a friend of ours, was going through a very similar experience that I was with a mother or a parent who was just kind of, you know, moving up there in age and they've done a lot in their lives and, you know, it has come to a point that they're not so coherent, so to speak. And everything that she was going through, I, too, was going through the same. So you're never alone. Even if you have your spiritual power and integrity, you still go through your own challenges. And what came up for us is I just want to be kind. I don't want to be unkind to someone that matters so much to me. And we were feeling that the impatience and the challenge and the test of taking care of a parent, you know, that it tests you. And so we need to understand how can we support kindness more, and how can we understand ourselves, and who better than to go to our next guest, Dr. Kelly Harding. Dr. Kelly Harding is an assistant clinical professor of psychiatry at Columbia University Irving Medical Center. She is a diplomat of the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology and a board-certified psychiatrist focused on emotional well-being and the interplay between mental and physical health. Her goal is to care for every patient with a comprehensive, holistic approach, and Dr. Harding has appeared on the Today Show, Good Morning America, NPR, Oprah.com, and all over. And her new book is entitled The Rapid Effect, Live Longer, Happier, and Healthier with the Groundbreaking Science of Kindness. We are looking forward to our having a conversation with Dr. Harding. Hi, Dr. Harding. Welcome. Oh,
0: hello. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Oh, I'm so glad that you could join us because, you know, this whole area of emotional well-being, physical well-being, intellectual well-being, it's on the rise that we're looking for answers and how we can be better people, so to speak. But I'm really, really, really want us to dive deep in your new book called The Rabbit Effect. So before I get to that, tell us a little bit about Dr. Harding. How come she ended up in this particular field, which now has got to be one of the most challenging fields of all time? And I have a brother who's a psychiatrist as well in India. And would you believe in India, for the population of over a billion people, there are only 3,000 psychiatrists in the country? It's a taboo. Can you believe it?
0: So you were saying it's a taboo?
1: Yeah, it's a taboo that culturally they don't know how to address it. So whether it's through a guru or a prayer or just leaving it to karma, they've not been able to really go for the clinical support that sometimes a relative needs to sort of get over it. Even I have been involved with it, like I don't know what to do sometimes when it's an emotional collision happening inside. So anyway, how did you get involved with this particular profession? What was the genesis behind it? Okay,
0: so what led me to the field of psychiatry, you know, it was ultimately this quest to try to understand, you know, what we were missing in medicine and this interplay between our thoughts, feelings, and emotions, and then also
1: our physical health. Mm, Okay, and was there anyone in your family that you had noticed that maybe had some emotional issues? I was remembering when I was four years old, my mother had a nervous breakdown, and I had witnessed that, and I don't know what it was. But that triggered me to say, when I grow up, I'm going to become a doctor, that I'm going to help people with their mind, and that they can go to God and be healed. Little did I know that I would end up on the path of spiritual wisdom and teaching and helping people at, at weird levels. But was there anyone in your family that you had noticed that, wow, you would like to help and you found yourself moving in that field?
0: Oh, Sister Jenna, isn't that a remarkable It's funny you ask that because it's not actually something I necessarily put in the book, but it was a big part of my growing up. And, you know, so my mom actually had a lot of health trouble throughout her life, and it wasn't Mm -hmm. always clear to me why that was. And, you know, she struggled with her weight and also, you know, she had many more health problems than you would sort of anticipate given her, you know, much of the things that she did. And I knew that trauma was a big part of her history. And, you know, I think I didn't really understand it at the time. But, you know, when she passed away somewhat unexpectedly, that actually for me was the time that I thought, you know, we can't not be talking about this as a society. I felt like I had all this knowledge from my training, and it really was the kind of knowledge that we needed to have in the hands of, you know, every person, because it's not just doctors and, you know, people who work in health care. It's all of us that need to take care of yeah. each other for better health.
1: Yes, absolutely. And when you're children, like when you're young, you don't know. It almost is like your norm, but something in your innocence and purity always feels, dad or mom, I I wish they were happy or I wish they didn't do what they did. It's almost as if we innately know. But even as we grow as adults, I don't know about you, but even for me... I find myself sometimes just going, gosh, why can't you just think this way? And then you know it's ignorance. You know it's just not what it is. Like, yeah, why did I have a kidney failure? It's just what it is. And it's such a hard area to discern and to decode and find an element of peace within yourself. You know, always wondering that, I think, come on, you can do this. Let's go to the beach. Come on, jump up. And they go right back to that same place.
0: It's a. Uh it's really true that, you know, it's on many levels. So one, you know, the things that happen to us, how we learn to live Mm -hmm. with that. And now there's all this evidence that I do talk about in the rabbit effect that, you know, as a physician, I find really striking, you know, about how histories of, you know, trauma, particularly when we're kids, can impact our physical health decades later. And it's something that we're often not talking about at the doctor's office, but yet it's as important to our health history as if we smoke or drink alcohol or if we have high blood pressure. So that's, and those are specifically called ACEs or adverse childhood events, which I talk about in the book. And then, you know, the other piece of it is exactly what you said is that when we do get illnesses, how do we learn, because we're human and that happens, you know, how do we learn mm-hmm. to navigate and live with that and minimize their role in our lives so that we can continue to yes. function and be connected to others? And minimize
1: it, too, without feeling a sense of guilt. Right, right. Oh, gosh, isn't it, isn't it amazing <laughs>
0: the stigma that goes on when it comes to both, yes. you know, we talked earlier about mental health, but also with physical health. You know, people feel like it's a failure when they get sick,
1: and yes. that's just such a shame. We need to move beyond that. It is, it is. And each one, in my culture or in just my practical common sense, <laughs> forget culture and mine and whatever, But just I always feel like there's got to be something else at a deep soul level that you and I have no window to. We can't see into it. And it's only the soul and God that can sit there and try to sort it out because it's so deep-rooted. And because I believe that some of us or many of us in this beautiful world, we've taken more than one lifetime, that maybe there are experiences in the past that were so traumatic as well that we haven't been able to release. I can understand my mother's trauma because she lost her parents when she was seven in a train accident. And because she was the eldest of the children, they asked her, because it's a developing country, they actually took that child out to the scene where there were over 250 bodies so she could identify where her mother was. I know. And on top of that, she wasn't even able to find her. But she had this sort of a intuitive psychic abilities. As a child, she's telling the people, my mother's in a ditch, my mother's in a ditch. And they Uh, wouldn't follow uh, her. So I think, you know, the trauma that she's gone through from seven, the maturation of her brain and her physical stuff has definitely played a role in her consistent theme in her thinking that something is wrong with her. Her body is ill. She's going to die. And I know that's from her past. And no matter how much wisdom and we're so blessed, she's not able to move from it. And the only thing I can offer her, Dr. Harding, is time and my good wishes. And it's been such an interesting observation. And I want to go to your book, The Rabbit Effect. I love that. And it provides a radical new way to think about our health, wellness, and, and how we have the choice to live. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about the book and explain how did you come up with The Rabbit Effect? actually before i do that if
0: i could just come back to your comment because it's actually something that is a theme throughout the book and it's a theme throughout i feel like all of our work is you know we know so much but at the same time there's so much mystery out there we don't fully understand how things work and and it's incredible our connections to one another on a level that sometimes it feels mysterious and powerful, and I love what you said about with your mom that sometimes it's just offering her your time and your well wishes because I think, you know, the other thing that we don't necessarily give credit to a lot of times is that when people are in pain, just being present is so powerful. And mm-hmm. that's something that every single one of your listeners out there Can do, you know, like just to be present for someone else who's going through something difficult, even if you don't know what it is. You know, I think that's a tremendous
1: gift. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you for um, saying that. Because one of the things I sometimes feel is that I don't have anything more to offer her, but sometimes just to go and rub her back and tuck her in and then turn in after Mm -hmm. a long day. Yeah, right. So the rabbit effect. How did that come about? And I love rabbits, by the way. (laughs) <laughs> oh,
0: yeah me too. <laughs>
1: oh, and
0: it's kind of fun because with the book, I feel like I've you know, I'm seeing a lot more rabbits and people are sending me rabbits, <laughs> like rabbit <laughs> photos and all that stuff. So I'm glad uh, I feel a kinship. But you know, the rabbit effect, it, it's based on this. the name the name of the book comes from this study that was done in the late 1970s that was actually a study designed for entirely different purposes by this lovely fellow named Dr. Robert Miram who is a basic scientist, and he was looking at heart health and a high-fat diet. It was a study you know, being done with rabbits, and pretty much genetically identical rabbits getting the same diet, he expected to find the same heart findings or health findings. And what he found is that one of the groups of rabbits was having far better health outcomes than the other groups. And they thought there was something wrong with the protocol. They looked around, and they realized what's different was that all of the rabbits doing better were under the care of the same researcher. And they noticed she wasn't just feeding the rabbits. She was also petting the rabbits. She was talking to the rabbits. She was holding the rabbits. She was basically giving them love and kindness. And much to his credit, you know, at the time, it was sort of an out-there idea. He thought, could our social world be impacting the health of those rabbits could love and kindness be making a difference to those rabbits and so they repeated the experiment this time with very tightly controlled conditions and sure enough they got the same findings and they published it in science when i learned about that study i mean this is really a groundbreaking study and when i learned about it it really propelled me to try to learn more about how our social world impacts our health and here's the amazing thing as a physician is It's incredible. It turns out, you know, medical care is critical. It's an important piece of everything, but it probably only accounts for about 10 to 20% of our overall health. And by far the biggest contributor, even beyond our genes, is our social world. And the field of public health has mountains of evidence about this. So that's what I felt needed to be out there. So I went ahead and I worked very hard to put it all into a book and try to tell the story of how our social world gets under our skin.
1: Mm, Wow, that's powerful. So basically, what we need is kindness, the cure, or just a cure. Because one of the things that offer us a great deal of opportunity is that when you're living with someone 24-7, and you have your own goals and dreams, which you wish to have that person join you on, you find that you think you're giving kindness and you are there and you are loving, but it doesn't seem to work they're still in that space. And so is it that you're not calculating the amount of times that you're not kind if you're not loving? So I keep wondering about this thing that if I am loving and kind, and I'm giving you my mother, for example, she's around a very loving, beautiful environment of community and love and service and purpose, and yet she's getting worse, at least in my eyes.
0: Well, I would come back to this idea that There's several things in there. The the first would be, you know, kindness as a practice. So, um, Mm -hmm. and we can leave the door open to kindness and whether or not someone else chooses to walk through it is, you know, up to them. But, you know, to have a world where we're all leaving the door open to kindness and to each other, just to imagine that. The other piece of that is that, and also I would add to that, that, you know, kindness involves some tricky stuff. It's not just sort of being nice, it's also learning to navigate You know conflicts that arise, and how do you do that in a way that still treats the other person with dignity or the other groups with dignity? You know, and to do it in a way where we're able to focus on the the problems and not the people necessarily um, is challenging. You know, the the other thing to keep in mind is that we are all human, and you know the death rate Mm -hmm. still is one hundred percent, and. What we do know from the evidence is that, you know, kindness in all of its different forms seems to buffer the stresses that occur. It's not going to sort of solve everything, but at the same time, it's this tremendous buffer that I know from a medical perspective, we often underestimate its role. And because it's hidden in sort of our nooks and crannies of our daily lives. And, you know, it's really, it's amazing because kindness comes in so many forms. It's both our actions, our thoughts our deeds, you know, even the kind, loving touch to somebody that we care about, that can have a very positive effect, and a this positive ripple effect in a way we may not necessarily appreciate.
1: Mm-hmm. I love that. that. That was great. You point out that despite our scientific progress and all the money that is spent on medical care, Americans are remarkably still quite unhealthy. What are some of the findings in this area, and why have we become so unwell? And by the way, I did my five sit-ups this morning, so this question does not apply to me.
0: (laughs) Wonderful. You know, so that's the thing. We think about health, and we usually think of it involving, you know, diet, exercise, uh, sleep, which is, those are all very important, and the occasional trips to the doctor. And while all those things are important, we also have to be looking at our connections to one another, is is what the science says. So when we look at Healthcare in the U.S., we know that we are spending a fortune on it. I mean, we're spending practically double compared to many other wealthy nations, you know, per capita. So, and then when we look at our health outcomes, we also know that we're not living up to the standards of what we would anticipate, you know, despite having some of the best medical care in the country. And I think this gives at this idea that health care is not health. And so what are we missing? Because we do spend you know, 95% of every dollar on healthcare goes towards medical care and associated costs. Now again, while that's absolutely critical that everyone has access to medical care, the other piece of it is we have to be looking at how we're you know, investing in our social infrastructure. So how are we treating each other in our communities? Are we investing in programs in the communities that support families, that support individuals? When you look sort of across the board, There is no reason that a child in the U.S. should be less likely to reach her fifth birthday than children in other well-developed, wealthy nations around the world. But yet, that's happening. And, you know, that's just one of many across the board. Americans have higher rates of premature death, homicide, mental illness, obesity, high blood pressure, cardiovascular disease, and car accidents. You have to sort of question, like, maybe where we're in, doubling down on medical care, we also need to think about how can we invest more broadly in health.
1: Lovely. It's interesting because I've traveled to over 95 countries and one of the things oh, wow. I have observed, yeah, one of the things I've observed is when I am in villages or with indigenous tribes, they have nothing, nothing, Dr. Harding, nothing. And there's still a spark of light in their eyes, these mm-hmm. children. And it surprises me that I'll see our kids here with so much, so much. Mm. And so it makes me realize that we have missed the culture of serving the human heart and the soul at a much deeper level. Perhaps we're just living from that external dimension. And one of the truths that we have to bear as a nation is that we do have a culture of illness. It's not a culture of well-being, even though we propagate that in our PR and our marketing. What are some of the red flags or warning signs that we should be aware of in terms of our health? Well,
0: first I want to say that's absolutely beautiful because we put a lot of emphasis in this country on possessions and what we have. And, you know, there are all these really interesting studies But you know, there is a threshold to sort of above a certain level. People do tend to be happier. And But beyond that, there's not much added value, which is pretty amazing, especially when we look at financial disparities in the country. And it's really amazing that even when you physically don't have a lot of material wealth, there still are so mm-hmm. many things that you do have. And it's that spark exactly that you talked about that all of us have to offer to the people that we encounter on our day-to-day lives. And it's really amazing how just that little bit of connection between somebody else and yourself can change their day in a way that you might not have anticipated and maybe even change their life in a way that you may not even anticipate. And I actually, it reminds me of your work and that I feel like you're teaching so many people about this. And I think that's one of the things is that teaching and education actually has a huge impact on our health. And it's not necessarily something we're talking about. And it's certainly not something we're investing in very much in this
1: country. Mm -hmm. That's true, that's true So any other red flags have you noticed That we need to pay attention to in addition? Well I would
0: say that the biggest thing And the biggest message and takeaway of the book Is we have to define health more broadly than just medical care alone mm-hmm. or even just the body. We need to be thinking about more about general wellness, our commute the health of our neighborhoods, our communities, our connections to each other. And you know, we're living in challenging times. Like probably our biggest red flag is sitting in our pockets and purses and that's, you know, our phones. We're connected in a way that yeah. we're not always physically connected or face to face connected or truly where it's this meaningful, positive interaction. And that's what we want to be aiming for, these meaningful, positive interactions. Because, boy, there's a lot of negative stuff out there. But, you know, <laughs> we really can make an effort to look other people in the eye and connect in a way that
1: yes countless
0: opportunities throughout the day.
1: Yeah, we do a practice called Drishti, D-R-I-S-H-T-I, oh. which I've learned from my spiritual friends and community of the Brahma Kumaris, it's that every time you say hello or meet someone, you're internally connected to a place within your consciousness that's very pure and at peace. And you're connecting with source, and then you're meeting that soul from that place within. And it always gives me this feeling like I know you deeply or you know I understand what your challenges are, but I don't care. Or just it's an expression of love, and so that's very true. And another thing that, and I don't know if you've ever been to India, but I always give this joke, you know, you'll be in a room in in an Indian family and there are 20 of us in the room and everyone is having a very riveting conversation and each one can understand each other. And for the life of us, we just can't decode how they're able to do that because we come here in America and I have to finish my sentence and then you can respond. (laughs) But there is something very healthy in that Sort of um, that community, that just feeling of just being with a bunch of people all the time, just being you in whatever way it's possible. There's another part in your book that I liked because you critique the medical system for many times compartmentalizing patients. And treating their illness as disparate issues instead of essential and interconnected parts of a whole and I agree with you on that when I take my mother go to this specialist and you have to go to that specialist and you have to go to that specialist and I never feel the connection but Eastern medicine traditions have always stressed the importance of the mind-body connection can you share where you think maybe the Western medicine has been so slow in recognizing the connection and I have another part to ask the question There's got to be many physicians like you, too, who are realizing we can't keep serving at this level, which is the separate, you know. There's got to be a lot of physicians now who are feeling, this doesn't speak true to me as a physician. I'm hoping, at least. So true. Yeah, no, mm-hmm. it's really
0: true, and I have to say that's been a really encouraging part of this book because I absolutely love my profession, and I am seeing so many – I work with medical students, and I see so many physicians down the road experiencing symptoms of burnout and, you know, really caregiver fatigue in a lot of ways. And part of it, I think, is because we're not talking about this. We're not talking about the – we can treat the patient we can treat the problem that failed the patient and that's because we mm-hmm. have to be looking at this bigger context of the person's life and it's not fair to say it's just the medical doctor who should be doing this we really all need to take responsibility for this and put the supports into place so you know i'm seeing it happen more and more at hospitals where there's larger sort of interdisciplinary teams that are trying to address you know, what's happening at the home level, what's happening at the community, because you can have the best medicine in the world, but if the person can't have access to it or can't get it, it's not going to make a difference, or if they don't have access to healthy foods, if they don't have places they can walk and clear their minds, you know, or that they feel stressed out in their neighborhood. Like, we have to be talking about this bigger context of health because we ultimately pay for it in a way, you know, both mentally and also out of our pocketbooks, and we, Mm -hmm. we can just do so much better.
1: I have to tell you, in developing countries, I have seen them actually reveal that they're so much ahead than our system here. It's not a comparison. It's actually a fact. There's a hospital that's in Rajasthan, and when I go, 70% of the doctors meditate. And 85% of the nurses also choose to meditate. And so one of the reasons why they're doing it is that they feel that the patient also needs to feel the physician at that level as well. And I love that. Can you just imagine that here in the U.S.?
0: Well, so you're right. So, you know, here, oh, I love that model because Mm -hmm. it's true. It's like we have the evidence that meditation is so good for us on so many levels. And also there's now all these neat studies showing that compassionate doctors actually get better health outcomes with their patients. Yet, for some reason, there's this reluctance, you know, within the sort of current, to, to do some of these practices. And, you know, I think the problem is we're seeing high rates of burnout because of that. So I feel really encouraged, though, because especially students and other doctors, there is this groundswell of appreciation for taking better care of ourselves and our mental health so that we can take better
1: care of others as well. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, I agree. I agree. I used to have a doctor that whenever I would leave him, he just would be so stressed. That I had to make a very important decision and say, I love you, but even when I leave you, I feel more sick because you're just so intense. I mean, I always remember when he even just pulled blood. It was a big issue. And I love him, yeah. but his energy was so erratic that it actually hurt me more than cured me. Mm-hmm. World Suicide Prevention Day happened in this month of September, every 40 mm-hmm. seconds, someone loses their life to suicide. How do you speak to that? Is there something that you can offer? Because it's such a, it's where somebody just suffers alone thinking nobody understands them. And I just wish that anyone who's out there in that place, can I tell you, believe it or not, none of us None of us are alone. I was mentioning earlier about the screening for American Heretics. There I am standing just having a conversation with a woman who was going through the same exact thing I was going through. And I was thinking, well, I'm evolved. I can handle all of this, only to realize you can be evolved, but still you are human, and there are things that you go through. And I felt such a comfort feeling that, wow, we were going through the same things. And so for folks who are just grappling with just feeling so lonely with their thoughts and unfortunately taking their lives, what can we tell somebody who's on the fence and try to inspire them to believe and be hopeful? Things can change in a second.
0: Sure. So that's the key message right there is that for every person out there listening, we are not alone. There are so many others that... Now, there is a lot of pain in this country, and I think it's important that we pay attention to that because it's not the kind of pain that's necessarily going to be treated in a doctor's office. But it also, you know, I'm sorry, could I restart that answer because this is such an incredibly important topic?
1: Sure, uh, sure. I call it your producer so, for that. So that's okay.
0: So, exactly as you said, it's just so critical that people know they're not alone. You know, whatever they're going through, whatever they're feeling the weight on their shoulders, that there are others out there, and that we are interconnected in this incredibly profound way that we don't necessarily understand yet, but we know it's got this big impact on our health. Um, You know, I think with suicide in particular, it's so heartbreaking, and it's not just the individual, but it's also families experience with suicide in a way that's different than Other illnesses, too, because sometimes it can feel so isolating when something like Mm -hmm. that happens in your own family. So just to realize that there are so many other people out there. You know, earlier I talked about adverse childhood experiences or ACEs and childhood trauma. And when you look at the data, actually, it turns out that every other person you pass on the street has a history of trauma. And that's not something we're talking about, but that means there, there's a lot of pain out there, especially a lot of past pain. And if we could just move the conversation in a way that we're able to feel more connected to others and not feel so isolated, I think that's going to be a real service. So I want to thank you for your program
1: because I think mm-hmm. you're doing exactly that work. Mm, thank you. Thank you for saying that. I hope so. I hope so. So I've loved our talk today. Thank you so much. Oh my pleasure.
0: I feel better. Taking it. So, so thank you for including that. I appreciate that.
1: So as we look into the signs of kindness that we touched upon a little bit earlier, steps that the whole science of being kind, is it is it an emotional or is it a chemically something that we can tap into you know how they say if you laugh out loud or something about your endorphins that if you do something your endorphins get stimulated if you go running and then you feel better let's say if i'm not feeling so kind is there something i can do to trigger that (laughs) i'm asking for personal experience to (laughs) To just feel a little bit kinder especially at that moment you know
0: sure so i think some exercises to build empathy. And again, to keep in mind, this is all a skill and a practice that we're all working on. There's that thing, which sometimes can be helpful if you're in the moment where somebody is behaving in a particularly unkind way. And just keeping in mind that they might be suffering with something that you don't fully understand the scope of, but you're just sort of seeing the tip of the iceberg. The other thing is, you know, some of the loving kindness meditation I really love, and that's, you know, wishing recognizing that somebody who's being unkind is probably grappling with something that's quite big and difficult and probably a lot of shame in there too so you know wish them love and kindness on their journey and it's amazing because you may just in yourself notice a change and so the way sort of scientifically this works and i go into great detail in the rabbit effect is there's all this amazing science now about you know not just um genetics but epigenetics so this is probably the mechanism of how our social world is changing our biology. And that's really exciting stuff. And there's also, you know, evidence around telomeres. And it's probably a lot of this. And telomeres are the little bits of our DNA at the very end that are correlated with lifespan and all causes of illness. So it's pretty amazing stuff. And it's probably mediated in part through stress. So we want to try to you know, stress is a part of life, but how can we provide these buffers for ourselves so that we can be more buoyant for whatever may come our way? And, you know, part of that may include practices like meditation that you talked about. You know, part mm-hmm. of it may be offering kindness to people that are stressful and sort of helping ourselves keep perspective in those moments. And I think what's also helpful is when you're practicing that way, you're also helping other people practice that way because. You know, for instance, if you're a parent, you're showing your kids how to navigate this stuff. Or yes. if you're a coworker and you're navigating something skillfully, you're helping your junior colleagues or other coworkers notice that too. Uh, you know, work is a big health factor. We didn't necessarily touch on, but how we treat each other in our workplaces has a huge impact on our physical health.
1: Yes, beautiful. Thank you so much, Dr. Harding. It's been very heartfelt, very revealing, and helpful, to say the least. Are you doing any book signing tours? Are you going to be in the Washington, D.C. metro area anytime soon? Please feel free to come by the Meditation Museum and do a book oh. signing, too. We would love to oh, have thank you thank if you so you're much open. for that.
0: I appreciate that. I was just at Politics and Prose, and now I'm starting on my national book tour. But I know I will be back through for D.C., so I would love to take you up on that, absolutely,
1: and learn more. Beautiful. Me too, me too. So leave us with a website where folks can hear about where you'll be touring and if they need to, contact you for more information.
0: Oh, so if you Google mm-hmm. the rabbit effect, it should come up and my name. It should come up as to the tour dates. And then, you know, I'm just back on
1: social media, so I have to, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that's I'm sorry. fine. So I think it might be kellyhardingmd.com, and then, of course, I think folks can go to the rabbit effect if they want information, right?
0: Right, and I have to warn you that when you type in the rabbit effect, you get all kinds of stuff, so it can be helpful to type in the rabbit effect and Kelly Harding. Um, So my Twitter handle, it looks like, is Harding Kelly, which I do. I'm posting on there, and I'll put dates of tours, and then I'm also on Instagram as well, and that one is Kelly Harding MD.
1: Yes, we just followed you on Twitter too, so enjoy. I'm looking forward to our updates. Lots of love, many blessings, and lots of success for your book tour and to be continued.
0: Sounds wonderful. And actually, the book has been selling out at all the locations I've gone to so far, which makes me Mm. hugely encouraged for kindness.
1: Yes. Yes, it's a time. It's a good time. Yes. All right, right. Dr. Kelly Harding, thank you. 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 Same here. Many blessings. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was Dr. Kelly Harding. For more information, just go to Kelly with K-E-L-L-I hardingmd.com or google the rabbit effect but put her name in just in case you don't get any other rabbits (laughs) hope you enjoyed our conversation remember no one can take away your happiness unless you give them permission and we really are here to love each other the same so let's do that more and more and more and here is lucinda drayton i'm going to end today's show on this love take care everyone